Gambling for a living, it was the best place around. All the men would come and lay their money down. Her daddy was a jealous man, but Johanna fell in love. Cool greetings to you, my vamps. What wonderful blood donors you are for stopping by and listening to the Paranormal Prowlers podcast. I'm your host, Tessa Morrow, and those vampiric tunes that just entered through your listening vessels is, of course, courtesy of the lovely Bobby Mackey. And I'm your host, Tessa Morrow. Now, grab a blanket, snuggle up in your coffin, and take a listen as I discuss some bloodthirsty vampire cases and some spooky spine-tingling vampiric poems and quotes in between. Peter Blagojevic was a simple man, a Serbian peasant. When Peter died in 1725, it stirred quite the uproar. Within a week of his death, nine of his fellow villagers mysteriously die. When it comes to vampire history, this case is important as it is one of the first documented cases of vampiric hysteria. So what's the big deal? Peter dies, then nine others die. I mean, we're all going to die someday. The big deal is that it is strongly believed that Peter came back from the dead and brutally murdered these other villagers. How could someone think that a dead man can be responsible for these deaths? Well, there's a good reason. On their deathbeds, they claimed that Peter himself came to them at night and would throttle them, threaten them, and eventually kill them. Not only that, but the supposed vampire's wife says that after she buried him, he came back and kept asking her for his shoes. Legend has it that he came yet again and demanded food, and when his son refused his demand, no, he murdered him, drinking his blood. Too many strange happenings were occurring, so they felt the need to exhume the remains to see if they can find any answers to the unsettling questions that were building up. The signs they would look for was if the hair had grown... Are the fingernails or toenails longer and what have you? The priest was present for the exhumation and was shocked to see that the body did bear signs that he indeed was a vampire. His body showed no signs of decomp, like whatsoever. And this had been a while since he died, you know. Not only that, but his hair had grown and so did his beard. His old skin and his nails, well, those peeled away, and new skin and nails took its place. It also seemed that he was breathing, and his eyes were opening. And the most telling was that they could clearly see blood in his mouth and on the edges of his mouth. You know, the villagers, they absolutely had enough. They were scared, frustrated, terrified and downright pissed off because of this man they had to bury nine of their own the question that lingered in everyone's heads must have been who's next whose funeral will i be attending next is it mine yours his hers 
no one was safe. And that's a horrible feeling to endure. They couldn't stand to attend another funeral. They put a stake right through Peter's heart. Upon doing this, fresh blood poured out of him like a fountain, coming out of his nose, his mouth, and his ears. They then burned his body. No way in hell is this happening again. Once this happened, the mysterious deaths and bizarre visits stopped. Unquenched, unquenchable, around within thy heart shall dwell, nor ear can hear, nor tongue can tell, the tortures of that inward hell. But first on earth as vampire sent, thy corpse shall from its tomb be rent. Then ghostly haunt thy native place, and suck the blood of all thy race. There from thy daughter, sister, wife, at midnight drain the stream of life, yet loathe the banquet which perforce must feed thy livid living corpse. Thy victims, ere they yet expire, shall know their demon for their sire. As cursing thee, thou cursing them, thy flowers are withered in thy stem. Written by Lord Byron. He wrote this, I believe, in 1819. Arnold Paul died due to a hay wagon accident. He broke his neck, and like Peter, once Arnold was in the ground, several people started to die mysteriously at least 16 in this case. It was due to this case and Peter's that Austrian officers and physicians confirmed the reality of vampires lurking around in their area. Arnold had moved out to the area and soon he became known as the guy who always talked about vampires. He wasn't obsessed with them or wanted to be one by any means, but he claimed that he had been plagued by a vampire in Kosovo. He saved himself from the fangy vamp by eating the soil from the alleged vampire's grave and smearing himself with the blood. Within a month after Arnold's death, several people reported that he would come to them and taunting them. And sadly, each of these people died shortly afterwards. Quite scared, the villagers wondered what would happen next. It was then that they remembered what the late Arnold used to say being plagued by the Turkish vampire. They exhumed his body, and he didn't bear the signs of someone who had been dead for over a month. Instead, the body showed no signs of decomposition, his veins filled with fresh blood. People who bared witness of the exhumation said this regarding his state. Fresh blood had flowed from his eyes, nose, mouth, and ears, that the shirt, the covering, and the coffin were completely bloody that the old nails in his hands and feet, along with the skin, had fallen off, and that new ones had started to grow. Sounds pretty familiar, like our first case, Peter. They go into even further detail, and it's chilling. His body was red. His hair, nails, and beard, well, they'd all grown again, concluding that Paul was indeed a vampire. They drove a stake through his heart, to which he reacted with a frightful shriek. As if he were alive, groaning and bleeding, and burned the body. Well, so they decapitated Arnold, burnt his body, 
And to be on the safe side, they dis- disinterned his supposed victims and they did the exact same ritual. Believe it or not, that area was plagued by a second vampire outbreak. Several more people died. And as softly thou art sleeping, to thee shall I come creeping, and thy life's blood drain away. Written by Heinrich August Osenfelder in 1748. In Rhode Island, there was Nellie Vaughn. And I believe this next case is probably a severe case of mistaken identity. She never was obsessed with vampires. She wasn't weird, bizarre, nor odd. She was a 19-year-old girl who died from pneumonia in 1889. Heartbroken, her family buried her on the family farm. Her tombstone bare this epitaph, I am waiting and watching for you. To the locals, it was a looming threat. I am waiting for you. I am watching you. Really, it was just the comforting thing for her family, okay? They chose the epitaph. It wasn't her from beyond the grave. I am waiting for you. We will be reunited. I'll be watching for you, looking for you. Can it really be because of a few words on a headstone being taken the wrong way that she now is forever believed to be by some a vampire? Man, oh man, that makes me really want to have some beyond spooky one on my headstone just to mess with people. Better write it down. (laughs) I've read some eerie things etched onto headstones for years, but I never jumped to conclusions. You know, not too long ago, a woman was at the cemetery where Nellie is buried. She was first buried on the family farm, but later exhumed and moved to a cemetery. Well, this didn't help things. First that creepy epitaph, and then also now she was exhumed. Probably because her family just wanted to turn a different location now, not because she was a vampire. Well, this woman, she was working on grave rubbings, and when she got to Vaughn's grave, she noticed the grave rubbings were wet and unusable, even though it was a perfect dry day. All the others were okay, but not Nellie's. This woman suddenly approaches her, smiles, and she says, I am happy. Her appearance said otherwise. She looked grief-stricken. She looked as if she were about to burst into tears. The grave rubber asks her, is everything okay? Can I do anything to help you? And the woman again just replies, I am happy. The woman heads back to her car, not too far from where she talked to this mysterious woman, She turns around only to find nobody there. The woman has vanished. That's not the only encounter with this odd woman. Many believe this to be the spirit, the apparition of Nellie Vaughn, a girl who died too young, only to go down in history as a vampire due to a few words on a headstone. One day a man was at the cemetery visiting a loved one when suddenly he sees this beautiful woman. She's sitting on top of one of the tombs, He finds it odd and, you know, somewhat disrespectful, like don't sit on the headstones, but he greets her with a smile and she tells the visitor, I'm perfectly pleasant. He walks towards his desired headstone and turns around after a few steps only to find that the tomb sitter was gone. And yet another time, a woman was in the cemetery to only come upon a woman sobbing uncontrollably. (laughs) 
When the woman tried to comfort the mourner, she cried, saying, I am perfectly pleasant. Can't you see that? I am happy here. The encounters and sightings, they continue. One of my favorites is when a visitor came one evening and saw a woman in a beautiful gown dancing amongst the graves. When the person tried to approach the dancer, she just simply vanished. As the visitor was leaving, the dancer appeared and started dancing again. And one more encounter from this active spirit who knows if it's Nellie or not? People do believe it is. A young couple were heading towards the gates of the cemetery, probably to go visit a loved one. A young woman is standing there as if standing guard. When the couple approach, she says, I am happy. They try to pass the woman and the gates, and the woman says even louder, I am happy. With a growl. This apparition, full-bodied, so real, Many have seen her sitting on a tombstone. A lot of the times on moonlit nights, you could see her there. He lay like a corpse neath a demon's force, and she wrapped him in a shroud, and she fixes her teeth, his heart beneath, and she drank of the warm life blood. Written by Henry Thomas Lydell in 1833. Frederick Ransom was from Vermont. He was living in times where the New England vampire panic was taking place. He was a smart young man attending Dartmouth College when sadly he contracted tuberculosis and he died in 1817. Usually around this time, the vampire panic, when someone did die, the family would usually exhume the body to do things to prevent the deceased from coming back from the grave and terrorizing the living. Fred's father felt that he needed to save his family from becoming vampires, and he didn't want to do this, but he decided that in order to do this, he had to exhume his dearly departed son, and they burned his heart. But this did no good because the mother, the sister, and two brothers died shortly afterwards. And I doubt it had anything to do with vampires. It was probably consumption. It was probably tuberculosis. Sadly, but true. Probably. From the drear mansion of the tomb, from the low regions of the dead, the ghost of Sigismund doth roam, and dreadful haunts me in my bed. There, vested in infernal guise, by means to me not understood, close to my side the goblin lies and drinks away my vital blood, sucks from my veins the streaming life and drains the fountain of my heart. O oh, Gertrude, Gertrude, dearest wife, unutterable is my smart. Written by John Stagg in 1810. <laughs> Elizabeth Bathory will forever be known as a serial killer. Guinness World Records actually titled her with being the most prolific female serial killer. In a 20-year period, Elizabeth was responsible for the torture and the murder of several hundred children. It's believed the number is over 650 victims, but no one knows the exact count. It is believed to be much higher, as if 650 isn't high enough. The trial, well, it was a huge one. Over 300 eyewitnesses and survivors testified. 
evidence? Well, there was a ton of that too. And as she was being apprehended, luck was not on her side. Officials located remains of some of her victims. Legend has it that bathery would often bathe in the blood of virgins. The reasoning behind the spine-tingling, disgusting ritual? To keep her youth. She wanted to stay young. Families unknowingly sent their daughters to their deaths. They would ship their kids off to bathery to teach them quarterly etiquette. The children endured severe beatings, often freezing or starving to death. They would suffer from bites on the face, the neck, and other body parts. Elizabeth Bathery was a sadistic bitch. She was a sadistic monster who fully enjoyed watching her victims go through hell and then perishing by her hands or mouth. Besides taking their blood, it's believed she was also a cannibal. There's no doubt she was guilty. When they came to apprehend her, they came upon a girl who was being tortured. She was alive, but hurt. While they found another girl in the castle, and sadly she was dead. You think her punishment for such crimes would be a date with death, right? We've seen in history, especially back then, centuries ago, where it didn't take a lot for somebody to be executed. Well, her family was very important, and that literally saved her hide. She was related to royalty. She was the niece of Stephen Bathory, the King of Poland and Prince of Transylvania. Her brother was a judge royal in Hungary. That's the second highest judge. The several other family members she had had royal ties and connections so instead of death she was confined to a castle as a child elizabeth suffered through several seizures it's believed that she was epileptic and at that time in the 1500s and 1600s one of the epilepsy treatments included was the rubbing of blood on the lips is this where she first got her fascination with human blood from epilepsy treatments. Her life was a bizarre one. She witnessed as a child several executions, ones that her family made happen. Believe it or not, she was engaged to be married at the tender age of 10, marrying her fiance at 15. That marriage would last until her husband's death, 29 years later. You know, I just remember as a kid hearing about Elizabeth Bathory and just like terrified kids disappearing, bathing in blood. That's scary. I think actually she was like one of the first serial killers I ever heard about. Elizabeth Bathory. (laughs) Pell though her eyes, her lips are scarlet. From drinking of blood, this child, this harlot, born of the night and her heart of darkness, evil incarnate to dance so reckless, dreaming of blood, her fangs white-bearing, revealing her lust and her eyes pale staring. Written by Michael Birch, and I believe it was written earlier this year or late last year. Now, like Elizabeth Bathory, Peter Curtin was a sadistic serial killer known as the Vampire of Dusseldorf. Oftentimes drinking the blood from his victim's wounds, he was a prolific killer, a sexual predator. He may have gotten the sexual predator trait 
from his own father, a man who made his children watch him and his wife have sex, much to his wife's dismay. She was not a willing participant. Why in the hell would she want her children to watch her having sex, or in this case, being raped by their father, her husband? He also did time in prison due to the fact that he raped his own daughter. In Peter Curtin's case, the apple did not fall far from that rotten tree. He proved to be a disgusting individual. When he was only 13, he dated a girl who refused him sex. And to get his rocks off, he would engage in bestiality, stabbing the animals after achieving an orgasm. Like, yeah, utterly disgusting, right? This monster also started raping girls, including his own sister, the sister that his father had raped earlier on. He ended up raping and murdering a young girl. He then came back a day or so later to the location, to a bar that was really near the murder scene, so he could hear the locals talking about the murder. He then came to visit the girl's grave many times. He admitted that when he put the soil that covered her grave in his hands, he would get sexually aroused. Another murder he was connected to, he went to talk to the police at the site of the murder and he talks to them for a while. And it's like, you know, he just, we're seeing this. He's coming back to the scene. He needs to be part of the investigation. It's, it's like he can't stay away from the crimes, the victims. He murdered many people and he would pay for those bloody actions. Those actions led him straight to the guillotine in 1931. July 1st, he received his last meal, wiener schnitzel, a bottle of white wine, and fried potatoes. After my head has been chopped off, will I still be able to hear, at least for a moment, the sound of my own blood gushing from my neck? That would be the best pleasure to end all pleasure. Those were Peter Curtin's last words right before his date with the guillotine. Fritz Harman joins Peter and Elizabeth in the serial killer category known as the Vampire of Hanover. Fritz was a police informant. Taking advantage of this, he would lure children, young boys, at least 29 of them, to their deaths. He would attack them, biting their necks as they struggled. He referred to these as his little love bites. This was a sexual thing for him. What do Peter Curtin and Fritz Harman have in common? Many things, really. They're sadistic creatures, both from Germany, both serial killers, and, uh, yeah, guess what? That's right, my friends. A sharp blade to the neck, head plopping into the basket below. Not only this, but they were both executed by the same executioner. Karl Gruppler, a man who had conducted at least 144 executions in his 30 years of service. Thank you, sir, for taking out the trash. The last time I saw of Count Dracula was his kissing his hand to me with a red light of triumph in his eyes, and with a smile that Judas and Hell might be proud of. Words spoken by Bram Stoker in 1890. <coughs> Vincenzo Verzeni, known as the Vampire of Bergamo. 
killed at least two people so he could drink their blood. And now it's believed that he had at least 10 other victims, possibly even more. He was arrested in 1873 and he spent the rest of his life in prison. At his murder trial, he said, I killed those women and I tried to strangle the others because I felt a great pleasure in that act. The scratches that were found in the thighs were not produced with nails, but with teeth. Because after choking them, I bit them and I sucked the blood that was flowing, which I enjoyed very much. <coughs> the vampire is an outsider. He's the perfect metaphor for those things. He's someone who looks human and sounds human, but is not human. So he's always on the margins. Spoken by Anne Rice. Richard Chase, the vampire of Sacramento. He suffered from a severe case, a very severe case of schizophrenia. He believed that the Nazis were trying to kill him. And to save himself, he had to drink blood. Or so he claimed. This is what happened, of course. Who knows for sure? In a one-month span, he killed six people in California. Raping, killing, and that wasn't all. He also dwelled in cannibalism and necrophilia. He sliced the nipple off of one of his victims and drank the blood. He was truly disturbed, and when the authorities came to his house to apprehend him, they found a bloodbath. Like, quite literally, the floor, the walls, his ceiling, and his fridge were soaked in blood. His plates and cups were drenched with blood. It was a truly disturbing sight. The role seemed to demand that I keep myself worked up to fever pitch, so I took on the actual attributes of the horrible vampire, Dracula. Spoken by Bella Lugosi. Vlad Dracula, known as Vlad the Impaler, was born in Transylvania. He was a bloody ruler who would even dispatch his enemies by impaling them with a wooden stake. Legend has it that Vlad would enjoy dipping bread into his victim's blood. They would sit there, dying, and had no choice but to watch him drink their blood. I never had an invitation to a Halloween party when I was a child. I found that as Vampyra, I was Halloween. Words spoken by Mela Nermi, also known as Vampyra. I visited her grave, actually, and paid my respects a few years ago while in Hollywood for a wedding. And it was really, really a neat headstone she had there. You know, Vampyra, her figure was etched into the headstone and there were some kisses with lipstick on it and stuff that people had done. And now, of course, this was before COVID, where now, even if you cough, it's like, wait, do you have the Rona? <coughs> okay, sorry, my bad. Now, Sekhmet was the Egyptian feline warrior goddess, daughter of the sun god Ra. This is one of the oldest vampire tales. Ra sent his daughter down to punish mankind for disobedience. Well, unfortunately, she couldn't stop drinking the blood of her victims. Her bloodlust actions almost ended the human race. Yeah, 
I want to be here. You want to be here. They want to be there. You guys over there want to be. No, no, just none of this. So to stop her bloody actions, Ra turned the beer red, resembling blood. She drank so much of the beer. She got drunk, passed out. When she woke up, she called it a day, gave up her reign of slaughter, returned home to daddy-o. Who would have thought that the oldest vampiric tale would involve getting drunk off red beer? Now that's my kind of tale. Oh, excuse me. Too much beer there. Tis now the very witching time of night when churchyards yawn and hell itself breathes out contagion to this world. Words written by William Shakespeare around 1599. Alnwick Castle, a gorgeous 1,000-year-old castle, Talk about building things to last. I mean, 1,000 years old? Like, wow. In the 12th century, a man had suspicions that his wife was cheating on him, and they were confirmed one day when he caught her and her lover in the act. He spied on them on top of a roof. He lost his footing and fell to the hard, unforgiving ground far below. The man got a new home, six feet underground, and his wife, well, you know, she got to be with her lover without fear of being caught. The weeping, grieving widow? I don't think so. The Alnwick Castle has a vampire that comes with it, and it all started once they buried that poor man. That poor, heartbroken man. Now, supposedly, the man would rise from the grave at night, bringing a plague with him and spreading it. When they exhumed him, this is what a witness said. They armed themselves, therefore, with sharp spades and betaking themselves to the cemetery. They began to dig, and whilst they yet thought they would have to dig much deeper, they came upon his body, covered with but a thin layer of earth. It was gorged, swollen, with a frightful corpulence. They struck the body with a spade, and fresh blood spurted it out. This doesn't happen normally. I mean, usually people want to put a spade to a corpse anyways, but the fresh blood spurting out like a fountain? It's not Hollywood. That wouldn't happen in real life to a dead body. His body was removed from the castle grounds and burned to ashes. And once this happened, the attacks, they stopped. (laughs) How do we seem to you? Do you find us beautiful, magical, Our white skin, our fierce eyes. Drink, you ask me? Do you have any idea the things you will become? Anne Rice from Interview with the Vampire. Now, you know, in 1969, the bodies of animals, they started appearing in Highgate Cemetery in London. Upon inspection, it was discovered that the bodies were completely drained of blood and sporting the puncture wounds on their necks. At that time, people started seeing a shadowy figure in the area, and some had eerie encounters with this mysterious shadow, claiming that when it was in their presence, they seemed to be hypnotized. They weren't able to make a sound or move whatsoever. This attracted self-proclaimed vampire hunters, and unfortunately, this led to those hunters digging up a bunch of graves, destroying a bunch of stuff in their wake. Two men felt that they could take care of the problem. No, this wasn't the Ghostbusters. No, this wasn't a team of any kind. It was like a competition. This included a Friday the 13th exorcism that was televised. 
It wasn't all cameras and the power of Christ compels you. A woman's burnt headless body was actually found during this period, and the police thought it was related to black magic. One of the men involved in this bizarre competition was there holding a crucifix. The other man came later on and forced the doors open of a family tomb. He lifted the lid of a coffin, stake in his hand, about to basically destroy this body, when a smart companion talked him out of it last second. With much reluctance, he closed the lid, leaving the incense and garlic behind instead. Everyone knows the phenomenon of trying to hold your breath underwater, how at first it's all right and you can handle it. And then, as it gets closer and closer to the time when you must breathe, how urgent the need becomes, the list and the hunger to breathe. And then the panic sets in when you begin to think that you won't be able to breathe. And finally, when you take in air and the anxiety subsides, that's what it's like to be a vampire and need blood. Francis Ford Coppola. Sava Savanovic was a Serbian vampire who lived in an old mill, feeding on people's blood passing through in the area. Many were millers coming to mill their grains. Locals report that he has awoken from the grave and is back roaming the Serbian countryside. What's interesting is that this isn't like legend has it. This is the actual council themselves putting the warning out that the vampire is at it once again. I was walking down the river bank. It was just the other night when a vampire with a fishing rod gave me a real bad fright. I haven't had a bite all day, it said and bared its drooling fangs. A pint or two of your cool blood will cure my hunger pangs. It chased me down the cemetery, as silent as the grave, where spooks and ghouls and zombies, where I said, Brigid man, be brave. Written by Brigid Patrick. Back in the 1800s, a family, the Cranwells, lived in Groglin Range in Cumbria. It was not long after moving in that Lady Cranwell began to see things, these strange, mysterious lights at night, down below, wandering around in the garden. Well, one night, she saw a figure go to her bedroom's windowsill and one by one removing the panes. Reaching, what she saw next terrified her. A decaying, rotting hand comes through and opens up the latch. Obviously, this terrifies the woman, and she screams out for help. Her brothers, they come in, rushing into the room, and when they did, it was a sight that broke their hearts. Their poor sister laid in bed, absolutely horrified. She was bleeding profusely from her neck, and a figure, well, he darts out, evading capture. Her brothers knew that this will not happen again. We will protect our sister. And they decide to put it upon themselves to slay the vampire. The trap is set. Lady Cranwell is in the same bedroom where the incident occurred before. She's sleeping, or so she's pretending to sleep. The figure comes to the window and starts removing the panes one by one, just as before. The brothers, well, they jump out with their pistols and shoot the bloody intruder. It screams and runs off into the dark night. 
The brothers collect an angry mob of villagers, and off they set to the cemetery. This is where they find an old crypt, and it's open. Inside this crypt, they found gnawed-on bones and an open casket. The body inside was rotten, but bared a recent bullet wound. They burned it, and the family didn't encounter the figure again. Look out! Creatures of the dark, here to leave our mark. Sink our fangs in deep. You won't make a peep. Your body under our spell, spirit descending into hell. Blood flowing scarlet, here on a starlit night in the park, jogging alone at dark. I won't take long, no one knows you're gone. Disappeared in the night, forever gone out of sight. No one cares to look, for fear of being took. One bite is all it takes. A vampire's what it makes. Written by Vanessa Kurtz. Jor Grando was a peasant in Croatia, dying in 1656. He allegedly terrorized his fellow villagers for 16 years after his death. Official documents referred to him as Strigon a local name for what we know as vampire. The villagers claimed the deceased man would come at night knocking on people's doors. It's believed those that he visited would die. He also was kind of horny from beyond the grave. His widow said he would often come to her bugging her for sex. The people had enough and the priests encountered him. He warded Jor off with his holy cross. This resulted in a chase. The priests and some of the townspeople ran after him, corralling him back to the cemetery. They dug up the body and they decapitated it. And that was the end of his 16-year beyond-the-grave reign. Even broken in spirit as he is, no one can feel more deeply than he does the beauties of nature. Mary Shelley, 1818, Frankenstein. And the last quote for the episode spoken by Bram Stoker, the blood is the life. And ain't that the truth, my friends, for without thy blood, thou would die. Prepare to meet thy doom. Today, you know, many cases were discussed. You know, many happened centuries ago, these cases, while a couple more recent, such as Richard Chase and the Highgate Vampire. And before I end this, I want to mention another quick, more recent times case. A vampire slaying ritual took place in Romanian village in 2003. A laborer, Petra Toma, passed away and his family decided that he had become a vampire. What were the reasons? I don't know. I couldn't find an answer. But I do know this. The ritual went something like this. Six men, they exhumed the body. A stake went through his heart and garlic was sprinkled all over him. His rib cage was then crudely opened with a pitchfork and a neighbor reported this. They took out the heart, burnt it, and drank the ashes in a glass of water. Meanwhile, in nearby Bulgaria, a skeleton aging 700 years old was discovered in 2012. Not too long ago at all, 2012, sheesh. And signs bared that they did their own custom vampire slaying ritual. 
700 years ago, the body was pinned down with a heavy rock to prevent the dead from rising. It was stabbed in the chest with an iron rod, and his teeth had been removed so he cannot use them to bite down. And in Italy, a mass grave of plague victims from the 16th century was discovered by archaeologists. One woman had a brick wedged in her jaw, an exorcism technique that was used on supposed vampires in Europe during that time. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Yes! Listen to the others, you guys. They are equally awesome. Haven't heard every single one yet? No need to cry, my friends. You can binge listen right now by hitting up any of the podcast platforms, such as TuneIn Radio, Podcast Republic, Deezer, Overcast, wherever you may roam to listen to your other spectacular podcasts, you'll probably find Paranormal Prowlers podcasts lurking in the background. This week's special city shoutouts go to Overland, Kansas, West Valley City, Utah, Edison, New Jersey, Alamosa, Colorado, and North Aurora, Illinois. Thank you so much for everybody tuning in and listening. I really appreciate it. You're awesome. See you next week.